Welcome back guys to another episode of Talking with Alicia, a place where I celebrate women in their authentic form. Welcome to another episode. Today I have a very special guest with me, Petra Molnar. Thank you so much Petra for joining me. Um, My pleasure. So now you're a researcher at the International Human Rights Programme in Toronto and you're also a refugee and human rights lawyer which is absolutely amazing and which was why I was initially so interested in speaking to you. So um, the first thing I wanted to ask you was what does human rights mean to you? A great question and a hard one to start off with. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I see the human rights framework operating as a tool through which we can push for changes systemically in, in areas where it's very clear that people don't have the same opportunities as others. So I'm also somewhat skeptical sometimes of the way that the human rights model is applied globally because it's also coming from a very particular historical narrative and, and sometimes it's imposed upon societies or contexts without a critical lens in terms of understanding the local context. But I think overall, you know, there are certain inalienable human rights that we all have. And it's very clear that there are many, many areas in which we can work um, to help advance these rights for everyone. Yeah, that's absolutely yeah. perfect. Um, yeah, so even what your part of is just making sure that everyone gets equal rights, obviously, with health, education, and equal life to live with dignity as well. And um, I wanted to ask how you actually got into the human rights field, what sparked your interest, and yeah, just that. Sure. So I've had a very winding path to my current job, which I love. Um, I never planned to be a lawyer. I actually started off as a classical musician, a flautist. Uh, it was something that I studied since I was seven years old as a little girl in Czechoslovakia mm -hmm. and I thought that's what I was going to do with my life and then I got into university and I realized that I was always missing that kind of social justice element in music which was very important to me but it, it was very solitary work and so I basically had like a crisis at 18 years old and I thought oh my god my whole life is a sham I don't know what I'm doing. So then I kind of, you know, was waffling around, not really sure what to do, and just very much by chance ended up taking a job as a refugee settlement worker at a community agency. And that really opened up my eyes because as a migrant myself and as someone from a low-income family, I faced some of the same types of issues that, you know, newcomers to Canada were facing. And it really, I think it provided me with a new kind of lease on life and a way to tie all my passions and my skills together. And so then I ended up getting a master's in anthropology and refugee studies and planned to do a PhD and kind of go down the academic route. And then I had another bit of a crisis because I had funding to go and then that was taken away and then I was unemployed. And again, I was kind of like not really sure what the next step was. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that I considered law because I was always very skeptical of it because law in and of itself I think is a profession that sometimes actually perpetuates really problematic power relations. And I was very uncomfortable with the way law functions, but at the same time, it's also a really good toolkit through which to do your work. 
And so I decided, you know what, now's the time and maybe I should consider law. So I went to law school with the express purpose to do human rights and refugee work. And I did. And then I worked at a legal clinic for abused women for a while. And now I find myself in a more of a researcher policy position at the University of Toronto. That's great. That's great. And um, it's so refreshing to see that you've had a winding path and that you've tried these different things and then you didn't know what you were going to do because I feel like a lot of people, um, even my age, so I'm currently at university, um, are still unsure of what path to take, what things to do. And so what career would you, and what advice would you give, sorry, to anyone wanting to become an international human rights lawyer? Yeah, I mean, I think knowing yourself is, it's such a cliche thing to say, but I think it's really something that's so important because having that self-knowledge in terms of what it is that you like or are capable of doing or even can't do, for example, there are certain, there's certain parts of, the legal field that I, for example, I'm not very well suited for. I can go to court and I can do a decent job, but it's not the arena that I'm best suited for. I'm much more of a research and policy type person and kind of closed door advocacy with policymakers. That's kind of like my jam. So knowing knowing what you're good at and what feels good for you in your gut, I think is very important. And then also recognizing the limitations of the field because international human rights law and being a lawyer in general, especially as a woman, it's, it's difficult. And there are certain things you kind of have to get accustomed to. So in this field, for example, it's very common to work on contracts or not really knowing kind of where your next paycheck is coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, and being comfortable with that is something that takes practice because, you know, we all want a sense of security, right? Definitely. Especially because law school comes with a pretty hefty price tag. So mm-hmm. knowing that and knowing that it might take you a little while to kind of carve out your own niche and your own space and I would say networking which kind of sucks sometimes I think Mm -hmm. again especially for women because selling ourselves is a little bit difficult but honestly like all the opportunities that I have gotten have been through the connections that I have made Um, very important thank you for that um piece of advice and you mentioned before that it's um difficult for a woman to be um go into law can you expand a bit on that and what you mean by that Sure. Um, I mean, for me, I definitely underestimated how conservative the legal profession still is. Mm -hmm. And especially, you know, it's very clear that a lot of the ways that things are done really benefit the dominant group, and that is white men. So anyone who's not a white man does struggle. And, you know, it is changing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, people of color and women, slowly we're making inroads, but it is... It is definitely a little bit further behind than I realized. And, you know, that manifests in many different ways in the kind of discrimination that you see in the courtroom or when you're dealing with decision makers. It percolates through into policies in work, for example, and not being able to take parental leave or being looked down upon for wanting to stay home with your children. And that goes for both men and women. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, and, and diversity and racism is a huge problem, too. I think the profession is slowly but surely having to really take a hard look at that because it is changing. More of us who kind of don't fit the mold are starting to practice or are working in the field already. And it inherently is going to have to change. And it's slowly changing, but I think it's definitely definitely much more difficult than I thought it would be. 
And is this in Canada or would you say it would reflect other places as well? I mean, I, so I practice in Canada, even though I do international work, but my, my jurisdiction is Canada, so I can really only speak to my experiences here, but I've heard similar things from my friends who are attorneys in all sorts of other places. So it's it's systemic. It's Law has always been seen as a man's profession, and um, I think just like anything, any social change, it makes the dominant group that's in power and that has to relinquish power uncomfortable yeah. to, to see things changing. Definitely, definitely. And... Um, so what's a typical day for you like, um, for people that just want an insight on your career? Sure. I mean, that's a good question because my days are pretty varied. So if I'm in Canada and I'm kind of doing research, generally, yeah, I start my day usually with a pretty thorough kind of um, look at recent events and news because such a huge part of my work is being up to date with what's happening globally. And it's difficult sometimes too these days because it's just, it can get quite heavy. And then, yeah, if I'm working on a particular brief or a particular research project, then I have certain tasks with that. Depending on kind of where the project, which stage it's at, we might have meetings with policymakers or other lawyers or students because we're also a legal clinic that trains law students. So I supervise people on projects as well. Um, Yeah, sometimes we do go to court. Um, That's part of it too. And then a large part of my work, depending again on the project, is also international travel and international research. So I will be going to the Philippines, for example, in two weeks Mm -hmm. um, and looking at Canada's business practices there and how they're implicated in the human rights situation. So I'll be on the ground doing basically like, you know, morning to sundown research and and (laughs) gathering information. So it's pretty pretty different. It really depends. (laughs) That's exciting to see. And... um, Part of your job involves um, being a settlement worker, if I'm correct. That was my previous job, that yeah. So that was before law school. Before law school and um, settlement worker, because even I was um, unfamiliar. It's um, With Canada, you help newcomers that arrive to Canada um, understand basically their rights and responsibilities and you find services and programs that would be, um, that they need basically. And... Um, so as a settlement worker, what types of people did you meet and what did you experience, basically? It was a really wonderful experience and I do sometimes miss certain facets of it. But being, you know, in this field as a lawyer is very similar. You do one of the most wonderful joys of this work is you really get to interact and meet and become friends with on some level, you know, with people from all over the world, all sorts of different contexts and cultures and that sometimes creates its own set of issues, but it's definitely a very dynamic kind of experience. So, yeah, I mean, I it would kind of also depend on the types of populations that were arriving in Canada and different organizations sometimes tailor themselves to particular groups. But, yeah, I, I've really had the privilege of working with people from all over, from North Korea, Uganda, uh, East Africa, Roma from Europe. I also worked a lot with Colombians um, in South, Af- South America. So, yeah, all, all sorts of different groups. That's, that's really amazing. And just, I guess I can um, kind of imagine just hearing those different stories as well would um, be inspiring and a motivator as well to just do more as well. Um, were you, um, did your job involve getting them, um, just getting them informed or actually getting them residency to, or the right to live in Canada? Well, so as a settlement worker, your role is usually to support the person that's here through their settlement process, which can involve 
helping them with getting status. So usually if they're a refugee claimant, for example, coming here to Canada to claim asylum, then a settlement worker would ideally work closely with the lawyer who's helping on the legal side and they can help with some of the more psychosocial supports. But really, like the way I tried to do my work, both as a settlement worker and a lawyer, was kind of from a holistic perspective, looking at it as a team of people supporting this one person. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, okay. Do you think, what, did you face any obstacles whilst you were working with these people? Was, was there anything that you were surprised that you found it was more difficult to do? Or was it usually the same process? I mean, I think the difficulty that we always ran into is it's a field that's constantly like underwork, uh, understaffed and overworked, right? So the, the amount of resources that you have are limited. And there are many, many deserving cases, especially, you know, families and children who really could use the support. And it's, you you know, you're limited by the, the type of hours, even in the day that you can devote to a particular case, right? So mm-hmm. that can be difficult. And also just how difficult and sometimes violent the legal system is, you know, towards certain people and how it really sometimes has such a, a limited understanding of the human experience, especially how trauma, for example, impacts a person's daily reality, their memory and their ability to recall, you know, evidentiary things for their case, for example. This is something that's difficult with law and refugee law or even human rights law. Because sometimes, you know, I would say kind of in social sciences, it's it's a pretty well understood fact that trauma and difficult circumstances impact the way your brain works or memory. Yeah. But decision makers, I think, still struggle with that. And they expect people to remember like the minutia of their lives from five, six years ago. I mean, I don't even remember what I had for lunch like yesterday, right? Yeah. And <laughs> then you have these questions that can determine your credibility based on these kind of outdated modes of how a person's mind works. So I think it's, it's, all, it's, it's a difficult area to work in because sometimes you feel like you're kind of fighting the decision makers on these really, really basic principles. And um, you mentioned that in um, some of your reports as well, which is something that I've never um, thought about ever. Just the, as you said now, the mental trauma that immigrants actually face on top of everything that they're going through. through. So again, it's hard for them to really fight a case or stand their ground if they're not mentally stable on top of everything that's happened to them previously after they fled to come here. So, um, which was one of the things that um, I really loved about your work, how you're bringing these things that even I didn't know or just the general population isn't really aware of to light because... Um, again, I think we'll discuss it a bit further down the line, just the negative perception in the media immigrants and refugees have, um, and just how to debunk that and how we should start talking about issues like that and how hard it is for them. So thank you for researching that and bringing that to light. Um, I really appreciate that as well. And um, your also a lawyer, you said, and you've worked on cases with forced migration, obviously. Um, what's one of the most important cases you've done, or ca- a case that really has affected you? For sure. I mean, they, they all affect you in different ways, and they really stay with you for, for the rest of your life. I mean, you do create a bond with, 
with the person that you're working with, really, because you get to know them on such an intimate level. Yeah. I mean, definitely the case that stays with me was a case of a family from Colombia. Um, the woman was a human rights worker there that was uh, targeted by the FARC paramilitary group. And she basically had to give birth in secret, and then they fled with their nine-month-old daughter to Toronto. And their case was really, really well documented. So from the kind of legal perspective, it was definitely an easier case, quote-unquote, because they just had such a fulsome record of everything that happened. And then they got a positive decision, like, that day, which sometimes you get in writing later, and you have to wait, and you're not sure. So it just really showed how receptive the Immigration and Refugee Board was to their case. But, mm -hmm. yeah, I was very, very working very closely with, with them. And even after I stopped working at that agency, we actually remain friends to this day. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. And um, do you think that immigration process, the entrance, program, um, entrance process in Canada is, is difficult? How do, do you think it's justified? What, what are your opinions on that? I mean, the, so the immigration process, is it's complicated because there's all these different factors and facets to it, right? Because you have people who are coming in as immigrants, um, largely for economic reasons. Then you have this humanitarian program that recognizes that under international law, you have a right to claim asylum. Then there's a sponsorship program, too. If for example, you marry a Canadian or you adopt a child from abroad. So it is, it is very complicated, but I think there's definitely... Kind of a broad critique of mine is that there's a lack of nuance and understanding of complexity in people's lives. For example, something that refugee lawyers talk a lot about is that for us, you know, it's it's very, the, the way that the categories are broken up doesn't make sense in terms of the daily reality of people's lives. So you can be a bona fide refugee and yet still have certain economic reasons for wanting to come to Canada, right? Like a better job and or a future for your children. Yeah. But under law, there's this kind of arbitrary artificial divide that you cannot, if you're seen as an economic immigrant, then you cannot be a refugee. But mm -hmm. human lives are complicated and, you know, people have savings or they, you know, they, they will be bringing in all sorts of different things. It just, law is, it functions in a very small kind of box, mm -hmm. right? And you have to fit these complexities into a particular legal reality which it doesn't really encompass this kind of messiness of the human experience yeah so it's either black or it's white there's no exactly. gray area and yeah how do you think we can improve it or how do you think what do you think the process is to just break down those laws and just see the more human side of refugees and immigrants that's a complicated question, too, because, I mean, there's definitely, we can import more humanity into the process, for example, through training of decision makers in, in you know, all sorts of kind of basic things like trauma, trauma-informed practice, looking at gender-based violence and how that impacts your lived reality. I mean, there are guidelines, you know, to be fair, but training and then these kind of conversations are definitely important to be having. Um, so that's, that's one way. I mean... Another way is, I guess, looking at the kind of definitions we use that, you know, color our understanding of what a migrant is versus a refugee versus, you know, an economic immigrant and kind of troubling or questioning some of those. That That's more for a policy type discussion. And even, you know, it's also tied to what you were saying before, the kind of public perception and media perception of migrants. Because... Policy is largely shaped by the discourses around a particular issue, right? And it's kind of a feedback loop. So it all ties in together, and that's why we need to have these conversations, I think, as a society broadly.
definitely. What do you think the biggest myth is that you would, that really irritates you that people think about refugees? The one that's pretty prevalent here in Canada is that refugees and immigrants are coming to take advantage of Canada and that somehow, like, they're not worthy of being here. My ultimate rebuttal to that is, you know what, unless you're Native American, unless you're Indigenous, we're all immigrants here. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. You know, yeah. we are a settler society and we settled Indigenous land. So these kind of, you know, tropes of undeserving migrants, well, you know what, we're all undeserving migrants, to be honest, and yet we're here. And then also, I mean, looking at the kind of resilience and the kind of skills that migrants and refugees bring, and there's actually all sorts of studies and longitudinal studies over decades that show that newcomers and, and refugees and immigrants actually boost local economies and the creative sector and, and make for a richer society down the line. Yeah, you know, people might need a little bit of settlement support for the first five years, but down the line, generations down the line, it's actually good for the country. Yes, definitely. And you made such a good point where if we go back far enough with our families, everyone's immigrated from somewhere. No one's, for instance, a true American or a true Canadian or even like from England, um, a true British person. Because what does that even mean if you go back down the line? Um, one thing that um, a couple of... Um, things do um refugees that um i would like to point out as well that i researched about was that refugees are actually less likely to commit crimes as well than an average citizen um just because of everything that they've been through and as you said before they actually contribute more to society as well they become a contributing member of society um i don't know if it's like that in canada but um refugees in america and the uk they pay their taxes as Absolutely. well, and 85% um, of refugees are actually residing in the poorer countries rather than the western countries as well. Um, uh, actually, a small amount of refugees come to places like America. Um, yeah, less than 1% actually. Yeah, less than 1% and um, it's the media that sensationalizes everything. Um, what do you think... Um, was the media's outtake about the Syrian refugee crisis, which I think began in 2015. Um, it's now going on its eighth year of conflict. And it's, such a, it's an interesting kind of case study, uh, looking at how media really shapes public perceptions around refugees. So I actually, I have a personal connection to this because I was working in Turkey and Jordan in 2015. And it was, we were there actually looking at what Canada was and wasn't doing in, in that region. And mm -hmm. there was just like nothing. The Syria file was quiet. The public wasn't really engaging with it. Mm -hmm. And then through a series of kind of exposés, and there was that kind of heart-wrenching photo of this young baby boy, Alan Kurdi, whose body washed up on the shore that kind of galvanized the Canadian public because there was a Canadian connection. It kind of became uh, one of the landmark election issues here in Canada, and that's why we got, you know, the Liberal government in power, one of the reasons. Mm -hmm. But it's been really interesting because the media globally, I think, has really focused on this issue of migrants kind of being a crisis yeah. or a flood or an influx, this uncontrollable force that's just sweeping across the world, again, coming to take advantage of us, taking our jobs, you know, being perpetrators of crime, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's just... 
I think there's such a lack of understanding of human migrations. That's been happening since time immemorial. Yes, right now, perhaps there are more population flows than in recent history, but they're also geopolitically motivated, right? And any kind of prolonged conflict, there are big players like the United States, like Canada, like Russia, Saudi Arabia, that are in some way implicated as to why these conflicts even happen in the first place. So that's that's one of the things too. There's this kind of lack of looking at it from a historical perspective and from a kind of a geopolitical responsibility perspective. Mm-hmm. It goes to show how the media portrayals are so important, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know, not only is it very problematic when you're equating refugees with flooding and mass mm-hmm. and influx and crime, but then you have the flip side where the humanitarian space really reduces refugees to something that's to be pitied, right? Often it's brown women with babies, right? Mm-hmm. This kind of construct. Mm-hmm. That's how we can conceptualize a refugee, you mm-hmm. know? And some the people who need to be given voice as if they didn't have a voice already mm-hmm. or, you know, saved from, like, their oppressors. It's this really weird kind of, like, Western guilt mentality and mm-hmm. it, it's really problematic. I think it's a very it's a very clear way of showing how unable we are to look at nuances in the world, you know, and we need to reduce refugees into something that's kind of easily packaged. They're either criminals and terrible, or they're super poor brown people that we need to save. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. yeah, that is true. That is true. I didn't um, really consider that I knew the criminals part wasn't true, but even I admit, I kind of had the perception where I was like the helpless brown woman, I guess, and just because it's like that in the media and they need to be saved. So that is true. They, they even I didn't realize that they're only packaged in two forms, and yeah, obviously they're human. They, they have to be much more complex than that. Um. So, what was Canada's response to the refugee crisis? Do you think they responded appropriately to the Syrian? I mean, it was it was really great because definitely we we upped our numbers of resettled refugees to around thirty five thousand from basically like two to three thousand that was before. But again, I will critique it because it was very clearly an election promise that the government made, and then once they met that quota, the number has now gone down to around seven and a half thousand again. So. And that's not even just Syrians; that's all resettled refugees. So we're dealing with a very small population, and from a settlement worker point of view, if I go back to my previous life, mm-hmm. what the problem sometimes is is that governments don't, you know, consult the appropriate sectors enough. I think, like the settlement sector, and have a very short-term view in terms of what to do. So it's wonderful to bring in all these people, but if you don't have a mechanism in place through which to support them for two, three, four, even five years, you're going to have populations again very highly traumatized need assistance with language and retraining and, you know, psychosocial support. Um, And if you don't have that after a year when your government assistant runs out, then you have a whole unemployed, for example, population that's really struggling to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. And there's a, this has happened a couple of times in Canada's history where, you know, there's this kind of verb of like, wow, we need to bring in all these people. And then after a couple of years, we really see, declining successes among that population because there isn't enough follow-through support. Yeah, definitely. That's a really good point that you make. Also, I wanted to discuss, um, many people argue that a lot of the Arab states in the Persian Gulf, such as Saudi Arabia, 
didn't take any refugees at the start and there was the whole controversy why do you think that that happened exactly I mean, again, it's, it's all about kind of geopolitics, right? And, and the kind of relationships that are inherent in any particular context, right? So, the yeah, the Middle Eastern context is a very complex one. Certain countries, for example, don't have relations with others. There's also taking in refugees is very expensive, right? And they're, it's, it's just, it's a complex, complicated area. But again, I think your point, what you said earlier, is very important to come back to. The Western world resettles a very small percentage of the whole kind of global refugee population. The majority of Syrian refugees are in countries that are neighboring Syria. So we're talking about Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. And smaller kind of groups are, you know, in, in, in Europe and in Canada and the U.S. So it's, it's, it's a very unequal division. Yeah, and it makes you think that if um, the countries that are not as rich can support up to a million refugees, mm-hmm. even more sometimes, that um, the Western world are definitely not doing enough by just mm-hmm. getting like 7,000, for instance, what you said, um, Canada has reduced it to. Um, you- Sorry, but, but to be fair, it's also, it, I think it's also important to recognize that resettlement isn't for everyone. So, yes, I think overall we need to increase our numbers, but I think we also need to pay attention to how we're supporting, for example, neighboring countries, especially for people who might want to go back eventually when the conflict does end. Not everyone wants to come to Canada, right? And it's funny because that makes policymakers kind of uncomfortable. They're like, what do you mean they don't want to come to Canada? Yeah, because it's like a hugely re-traumatizing, terrible process. Migration is difficult, especially to a completely different context. A lot of people love their country, you know, you're constantly kind of torn in two, right? Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's difficult, I think. We need to look at it kind of from a multi, multi like a multifaceted yeah. support way. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And the media perception, again, that they came to take over or they came to just take advantage or they just came for like an enjoyment or no actual purpose. And I think that's what most people um, forget. And... Um, Again, a really good point that you made. Um, a lot of people don't want to come to the Western countries as well. They want to move back, especially if things have cleared up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and definitely um, more policies should support that. Um, Jordan um, has one of the highest re- um, numbers of Syrian refugees. And you actually talk about, you've written a report about how um, many refugees get detained or deported back and Syria against their will. Can you talk more about that? Sure. So this is a very big problem that's been happening in the Syria context, both from the Jordanian side and the Lebanese and the Turkish side as well. So under international law, there's this basic principle called non-refoulement, which means you're not allowed, once you take in a refugee, to send the person back to an area where they're likely to be persecuted. So you can't send them back, basically. But there's been reported instances um, of these governments rounding up Syrian refugees and busing them across the border. And even more troublingly, there's been reported instances of, for example, Turkish border guards shooting at Syrian refugees to try and like keep them in that zone between the two countries so that they can actually cross into the Turkish territory and... and uh, you know, um, claim asylum there. Mm-hmm. So, and detention of, of um, refugees and migrants is a very problematic phenomenon as well. Mm-hmm. 
because, you know, so I, I've done some work on that in the Middle East and then also in Canada because it's this, it's this really troubling thing that occurs where you're basically incarcerating people for not committing a crime. So they are immigration infractions, but that's a different area of law. You're not, for example, in the Canadian context, the person who's detained hasn't committed a crime under the criminal code. They might be detained for identity concerns, or maybe they are a flight risk, like they might go underground. Um, but again, it, it's quasi-criminal detention, but you don't have the same rights as a criminal does. Mm -hmm. So it's this very, very shadow system of controlling people's movements, and, and it's really, really troubling. Um, yeah, that's, again, very sad to hear about. And what do you think we should do about What do you think people can do about it to get the policy changes, or is it, again, complicated? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough one because... So my own politics are very much kind of open borders, you know, we shouldn't have detention at all. But as a lawyer and as someone who works in the system, I also recognize that, you know, we can't kind of create like a blanket sweep and just mm -hmm. pretend like it's not going to happen. And then, you know, because we operate in a particular system as it is right now. But there are definitely things that you can do better. You can provide people access to counsel like you do in the criminal system. Um, it's very difficult to build your case from detention if you can't even get access to a lawyer. Yeah. You, for example, just don't detain children and pregnant women. There's no no really reason for that if you can have other types of reporting mechanisms. Mm -hmm. um, have oversight mechanisms. Have an independent body check out your detention facility once in a while to see what's happening there. Provide psychosocial support. For example, if I have a client in detention and they're going through the refugee hearing and I need to get a uh, post-traumatic stress disorder assessment done it's very difficult it's difficult to get a doctor in there to do that and that's such an integral piece of your evidentiary package that you're putting together yeah. so making things like that easier or increase increasing alternatives to detention mm -hmm. for example you know community monitoring or calling in and checking in once a week to make sure that the person hasn't kind of gone underground or there's all sorts of other things you can do and also detention is very expensive for the government I hate to make economic arguments, I'm not an economist, <laughs> but from that kind of money perspective, it also doesn't make sense. And um, a lot of times, um, refugees that are detained are detained for long periods of time. They're almost like forgotten about. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it must be from the economic sense as well. And plus, it's not, it's not fair if they mm -hmm, have exactly. committed a crime or if there's no actual reason to detain them. Um, they shouldn't be detained yeah so as you said yeah we should be more thorough with what we do and um, also you um, also expressed your um, I guess passion um, for women's rights as well um, mm -hmm. you also have um, a kind of online platform you have a blog you have um, Atlas Women as well you're part of that as well can you explain more about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I women's rights are something that I've always integrated into my work. I mean, I'm working from a feminist lens is, is something that I do every day. Mm -hmm. um, and especially, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, too, as a, as a woman lawyer, sometimes it's very lonely work and you feel kind of like you're swimming upstream. So having groups like Atlas, for example, which is a wonderful resource for women working in international law. Mm -hmm. It's a group, it's kind of a secret group on Facebook of about, I think, 6,000 women all over the world that work on these issues and we support each other with like job postings and articles and just 
questions if someone's breaking out into a new area or becoming a consultant and you don't know how to write your you know your um project description you can ask more senior people for help so that's really really good um yeah and then women's rights for sure i mean i think there's definitely a lack of understanding of the kind of unique experiences of women and how migration or detention impacts them so i always look for ways to include that in my work definitely and what do you think right now is um one of the bigger issues with women's rights it doesn't have to be with international law but just generally yeah it's such an interesting time now i think to uh to be thinking about women's issues um I think for me, one of the biggest worries is that the the debate has become very polarized and very. I mean, it, it's funny because I I don't know I didn't really see it coming this whole kind of Me Too movement because I think a lot of us who work on women's issues were like, yeah, it sucks, it's pretty terrible out there, and so we're chipping away at it slowly. But it you know we weren't I don't think expecting this kind of like galvanization of support. Mm-hmm. But my worry is is that you know, the public is very myopic and also has a really short attention span. So right now it's something that's kind of hot and everyone's talking about it. But my worry is is that it's going to die down and it's actually not going to result in many policy or systemic changes. And I mean the kind of really deep stuff that takes a really long time and a lot of resources to change, like income inequality. Like the fact that I, right now, I only get paid 70% of what a male lawyer gets paid, you know? Like, it's, it's unbelievable. Like, there's such a discrepancy. And it's even more for people of color. So, you know, I mean, it, it's issues like that. It's issues like our society having to really grapple with what, you know, consent and sexual consent looks like and how that's going to impact our interpersonal relationships. And again, I think it goes back to what I was saying, even just in that little small slice of the world and looking at the legal profession, right? I think any time a dominant group in power has to kind of reckon with their power dynamics, yeah. it's uncomfortable because it means inherently that for things to be more equal, they're going to have to take it down a notch, right? They're going to have to lose their rights or maybe not lose their rights, but, you know, adjust yeah. what they're doing. Yeah. And that's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to take a long time. Yeah, that is um, that is true though. Hopefully um, it doesn't die down, but with everything, everything's so quick. So one thing's hot right now, the next second it's not. So we'll just see in the future. But I guess if people, um, especially women, if they keep expressing their views, if they keep expressing their voice and realising the potential of their voices, hopefully there will be in time real policy changes and um one of the final questions that i wanted to ask you was that um are you currently in the middle of writing a book i read about yeah so this is a project that has been going on for a while since i got back from uh, turkey and jordan and i'm working with a collaborator of mine her name is mais alzobi she's a syrian refugee uh currently in turkey and we want to kind of challenge some of the narratives around refugees and move away from that kind of victimhood, um, uh, you know, uh, portrayals and look more at the resilience of the Syrian community. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an independent project and we've been, you know, applying for funding, which sometimes is difficult, but uh, yeah, we're we're powering through and and working on it slowly, so I'll I'll keep you posted (laughs) when it finally comes out. um, Whenever you get released, you have to tell me. Um, I'll definitely read it and check it out.
Um, I said this before as well, but I'll say it again. The biggest thing I like about you is that you give people who don't have voices or don't always have a voice a voice, and that is so beautiful and it's really inspiring as well. Um, thank you so much for spending this time with me. Do you have any other questions or anything that you wanted to ask me? Or? I just wanted to say thank you for doing this. I think it's so important to connect women, you know, and, and people who work on really interesting issues together. And it's been such a wonderful pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you.